Know Your Food with Warty, episode 89. For links and more, visit the show notes at knowyourfoodpodcast.com slash 89. Hey everyone, thank you so much for joining me today. Let's start with the tip of the week, and it's a fantastic way to preserve herbs. You may be busy, you've got some things in the garden, some herbs to preserve. Well, this is the easiest way. It is to freeze them. Um, It's easy and quick. What you do is you harvest your herbs, make sure they're dry, you place them in a labeled container, and you freeze them. It's really simple. It works for just about all leafy herbs. Um, And so it can really save you time if you're busy, but you've got something you want to keep and not go to waste. Another idea for freezing them is actually to chop them up, put them in an ice cube tray with some um, olive oil. And then when they're frozen, you can actually pop those cubes out and store them in a freezer baggie and keep them in the freezer. And then, you know, if you need them to add to a soup or stew or whatever, you just toss your cubes right into the stew. For more um, ideas on preserving herbs, go to knowyourfoodpodcast.com slash freeze herbs. Freezing is just one of the five ways listed there. You want to check out the others as well. And today's listener question comes from Christina. She says, how can I consume real organic whole foods and lose weight? Ever since we began traditional cooking and food preparation, I've gained 10 pounds, and I already had about 20 to lose. I don't want to go on some extreme diet and forsake all the knowledge I've attained about nutrition in order to drop the weight, but I'm desperate. Any advice? Well, this is a great a great question, Christina. And, you know, I think you'll know from just, you know, being around, hearing about people who've switched from the standard American diet to a whole foods diet, even Um, traditional food diet that they just tend to lose weight, but that's not the case with all of us. There's so many factors at play. Um, You know, maybe we're more sedentary, maybe our metabolism is slower, maybe we're healing and not ready to lose the weight. Um, Maybe we're aging. Um, You know, there's so many factors. So unfortunately, it's not the case that everyone who embraces traditional foods loses weight. And like you, that is my position as well. So I've had to be more careful and a little more um, purposeful about losing weight. Um, so here, here's what I want to talk about, answering your question. And I can't spend all the time I would like. In fact, this may be the topic of another show. Um, but I found myself in the same position recently. And even though, you know, trying various things, of course, eating right, exercising, um, I was in the position of slowly over time, um, gaining weight, just very slowly. So it's almost like you wake up five years later and you, you realize, oh, I've got, you know, 30 pounds to lose, but it happened very slowly. So, um, I wasn't quite ready. I'm not quite ready to go public with this, but I'm going to anyway. Um, I, I feel like that I have a lot more thinking to do, but I'm just gonna, just gonna go out there and answer your question with what has helped me. Maybe it could help you. I know that it's not the answer for everyone because our bodies are so complex. And like I mentioned before, there's issues there, healing issues, lifestyle, age. Um, you just don't know all the factors. And our, our bodies are so miraculously designed by God that when we try to do like particular diets, it may be that it's over, oversimplifying it and it, we can't just generalize for everyone. But I'm going to share what's been working for me. 
what I have been following since um, mid-May this year, and today as I'm recording this, we're in October 2014, um, I have been um, applying the Trim Healthy Mama diet, but 100% traditional. So before anybody, you know, just like can't close their mouth in shock and thinks I've gone over the deep end, (laughs) just hang on and let me explain. This diet calls for some fake foods, I think in... um, most people's usual applications, um, but I don't use those. I'm simply um, trying out the philosophy and applying it in a 100% traditional way. I don't go out of my way to buy the specialty like, well, I'll tell you about that in a little bit. So pretty much what I'm doing is um, applying it in my kitchen with what we've got. Okay, so let me explain the premise behind this. And I'm going to really simplify it, which as I said, Probably even within Trim Healthy Mama, it could be an oversimplification of this beautiful, you know, design for our bodies. And when we try to put it into words and make this formula for everyone, we lose some information. But I think the premise behind it probably does work for most people, at least, or a lot of people. It has for me, and it has for many people um, I've seen on the internet. So here's the premise behind it. It is with every meal or snack, which are three and a half, three hours apart or two and a half to three hours apart, you consume only one type of food fuel source that is carbs or fat with protein. So the carbs or the fat are the primary food fuel sources. And you're only going to have one of those along with protein. So either fat and protein together or carb and protein together, three and a half hours apart. The reason being the um, sisters behind Trim Healthy Mom explain that our bodies use both fat and carbs as fuel. And as we age or get more sedentary or um, slow metabolism or, you know, our bodies just aren't working as well, um, both fat and carbs at the same meal is too much. We don't burn it all. And so we burn some, use some right away. But the rest is stored as fat. So it's, it's sort of a case of overeating, but it's overeating on the stuff that our body needs as fuel. Now, again, I just want to stress this may be an oversimplification because God's design for our bodies is so, so miraculously beautiful. So it might not work for everyone, but I, I feel it's a, something we can try, um, that I, I think most people could try if, they, if they're stuck, like you are, Christina, and I have been. My story, I started following back in mid-May, and since then I've lost almost 30 pounds. I do exercise, I do eat right, but I had up to, up to mid-May, I had been exercising for a few years regularly. I've been eating right for even longer. I couldn't lose the weight. I was slowly but surely gaining weight over the last half dozen years. I'd also during that time tried low carb. My understanding of that is, and again, this could be oversimplified because we have, um, we have stories of people losing and maintaining weight on low carb. But I wasn't losing because I think my metabolism slowed down and it just got stuck on that low-carb pattern. So since doing Trim Healthy Mama with alternating the fuel sources, and it doesn't mean, I don't mean every meal you alternate. Like one is um, fat protein, the next is carb protein, the next is fat protein. You don't, it's not even that stringent. Um, But the idea is you're having both types of meals and snacks. Um, 
So I probably eat a little bit more than I was eating before. I'm still exercising. So I was absolutely shocked to start following Trim Healthy Mama traditional food style and lose weight. And it just, I mean, it's just quite amazing to me. Um, and as I said, I was, I'm not quite ready to talk about it publicly, but I just have. And there's a lot to say, but I just want to go into a little bit about how I've applied it. Um, because I think the standard approach to Trim Healthy Mama or THM isn't, um, oh, how should I say it? It can be traditional, but I think a lot of people don't apply it traditionally. There are fake foods out there. You know, there's like defatted foods, for instance, where you're where people are purposely purchasing um, like low fat, no fat cheese or um, defatted peanut flour because there are whole foods that do contain fat, for instance. And let's say you want to eat it with a carb meal. So there are, you know what I would consider fake foods out there that the fat has been completely stripped. And so some people are applying the diet and they're purchasing these like defatted foods and um, using them in the carb meals. I love traditional foods and I love whole foods and I don't want to move away from that. So my way of applying this is that um, if I want to have cheese, I just simply don't have it in a carb meal. Because, you know, I love the fat and the cheese and I'll just eat it in a fat protein meal. Um, so what I'm doing are things that are natural in the kitchen in terms of splitting things, splitting foods up into their lower fat versions. So here's an example. We get we have a raw milk curd share. So we skim the cream off some of the milk. This is completely natural. I mean, people have done it for ages. You skim the cream and you make butter or sour cream or ice cream. Well, the skimmed milk can then be turned into yogurt or cottage cheese. So I have naturally separated the milk and now I have two parts of it to use. And the skimmed part I can use, the skimmed part that I make used to make yogurt, I can use yogurt is just going to be a lower fat yogurt. So I could use it either in a um, fat protein meal or a carb protein meal. And then of course, the fat that's turned into butter or ice cream or whatever that has to be part of a fat protein meal or snack. Another example, this would be cooking a whole chicken and you separate the light and the dark. The light part of the chicken will go to your carb protein meal because it's lower in fat. The dark meat will go to a fat protein meal because it's higher in fat. And these to me are very natural things to do. I mean, people have done it for ages. What's not natural to me is to um, get like to buy uh, no fat cheese or defatted, you know, peanut flour. Just giving you some examples of the things that do come up on this diet that other people do. Um, so I'm just basically approaching it with um, traditional foods and finding out where they fit. And often what comes up is meats. And I rely a lot on grass-fed beef and wild salmon. They're naturally lean. So they can be combined with more fat for a low-carb, high-fat meal, or they can be combined with carbs for a low-fat carb meal. Another thing to mention on this is sweetener. Sweetener is an issue. And um, even though there are carb protein meals, you you don't go really high on the carbs because excess carbs are stored as fat as well. So um, sugar just falls into that category. It really should be avoided almost entirely or just in, 
occasionally allowed. So um, I use stevia, which is a an herb that's sweet, but it's not sugar. And I use that 100% for sweetening, sweetening smoothies, sweetening desserts. Um, a side benefit to this, in addition to losing the weight, is I simply don't have sugar cravings like I used to have um, throughout my life. My energy is great, and these have been a big plus in addition to the weight loss. So I feel really, really good. And there is like so much more I could say, but I'm just going to leave it at this for now, kind of explain my story and a little bit about my approach. If you're interested, you can find the book, Trim Healthy Mama, at knowyourfoodpodcast.com slash THM book. I'll also include that link in the show notes. Um, I do see that you've participated in our traditional cooking school, so you can find a um, Trim Healthy Mama thread on our forums. Excuse me. We've been talking about the various ways that I and other members have done Trim Healthy Mama on traditional foods. And before I started in mid-May, we had a couple members who have had great success, and so they share their tips in that thread as well. So thank you so much for your question, Christina, and I just wish you the best, and I'd love to hear um, you know, what you decide and how it goes for you. And now let's take a quick break, and I'll be right back. Hi, I'm Wardy, a traditional cooking expert and food blogger at Ganalflins.com. For years, my family struggled with food-related health problems, but we don't anymore. And I'd love to show you that preparing whole foods with traditional methods is easy, delicious, and super good for you too. So just go to traditionalcookingschool.com slash free, and I'll show you how easily you can do it too. I'll give you five free videos that include my favorite traditional cooking techniques, plus printable at-a-glance fact sheets as a handy reference. So if you're ready to start looking good, feeling good, and most importantly, doing good, then visit traditionalcookingschool.com slash free today. It's time to introduce you to my guest. He is Bill McNorman from Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance. He is the co-director and co-founder of the Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance. It's a new nonprofit seed conservation organization that serves the Rocky Mountain West. He has founded three seed companies and co-founded several nonprofits, including the Sawtooth Botanical Garden in Haley, Idaho. Now, we're going to talk about seed saving and uh, the ritual of seed saving, and he's doing great work with seed saving schools and education and providing materials. In our interview coming up, we're going to mention that Bill has a free seed saving booklet for you, and there's a link to that in the show notes, knowyourfoodpodcast.com slash 89. Uh, You can actually read the entire thing online for free. Um, They offer uh, the, the, the the little helpful book, and little, don't take that as a negative, but you can get it in print for just five ninety five. And I mentioned in the interview that I was going to get one because it looked really good, and I did, and it's sitting right here now, and it's fantastic. It is just one of those books where uh, you want to have it when you're gardening, and you want to have the real thing in your hands on your bookshelf that you can refer to or that you can have next to you on the counter or your, you know, your growing table or wherever you're working with your seeds. So I do recommend, you know, check out the free version and then then consider making the investment and supporting, of course, their work by purchasing the print book so you can have it on your bookshelf. 
So enjoy this visit with Bill, and I do hope you'll connect with him afterward about seed saving. So he's got a lot of resources, or perhaps you can participate in his seed saving schools. This was just fascinating and wonderful for me to connect with him and just to be a small part of um, the inspiring work that he and his organization are doing to educate people and to inspire people to join this age-old process of seed saving and really bring it back. And also, we're going to talk about um, the regionality of it, that it's really something that should be focused on regions and to empower people in regions to do what works for their geography. Okay, so I'm going to turn now to my visit with Bill. Hey everyone, this is Wardy, and I'm here with Bill from RockyMountainSeeds.org. Hi, Bill. Hello, how are you? Oh, just great. How are you? I'm doing fine. It's a beautiful day here. Great. It is here, too. We have a few more days before we're getting one of our first fall rains, so we're going to make the most of it. <laughs> yeah, good. Let's, let's start out with... Um, me and everybody else getting to know you. So tell us about you and what you do. Well, I'm, uh, for a long time now, I've just been passionate about seeds and uh, seed saving. Uh, I think there's so much magic and power in it that for the past 30 years or more, I've dedicated myself to just spreading the word and teaching people how to do it. I think there's so much potential for us all in this uh, uh questionable and maybe uh, even troubled world sometimes that um, can be fixed if we all just reconnect with the ritual of seed saving. So that's, that's basically uh, who I am. Um, I live in central Idaho um, in the valley I grew up in now, and I've been lucky enough to uh, be part of the formation of a new nonprofit that um, allows me to do that sort of seed evangelism learn some things along the way, and I really believe um, that um, the solutions to our problems are being best addressed in sort of a permaculture um, context these days, and following that, um, decided to focus my seed um, uh, saving educational activities around teaching people in in a specific region in a bioregion, if you will, to uh, get involved. And so that's where the idea of the Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance comes from and our website, rockymountainseeds.org. Okay, so you're saying you've taken a uh, kind of a regional focus, kind of you're a niche of seed saving that's focused on people that live in your area? That's yeah. That's what you're saying your focus is? Yes, you know, it's, but in doing that, it, it becomes universal again. In other words, if you save seeds from something that you really like or works well for you because of diseases or pests or the fertility um, program that you have, and they work really well for you, it's most likely that they'll work really well for people closest to you and for people that are in your region. And so mm-hmm. it, as we try to sort of regain um, a connection with our seeds, it makes sense to do it in the easiest and most efficient manner. And so if the seeds you save work best for the people near you, then that's what we should be focusing on. And it's out of that simple idea that 
that um, comes this idea that we need to focus regionally when we talk about seed saving um, organizations and networking. So would you say that your organization is unique in that regional approach or is that something that a lot of seed saving organizations are coming to or, or has well, it been that way for a long time? Well, there are some that have, I think inevitably they'll all come to it. And mm -hmm. uh, unfor unfortunately, not all of them have come to that. And, you know, they've come through different, you know, it's a big switch. We've got, you know, six companies now that control more than half the world's seeds. And most of the people, even through this new, you know, our incredibly exciting local food movement, you know, that's happening everywhere with farmers markets and restaurants and chefs and people celebrating fresh local food. Almost all the seeds for all of the people that are doing that, no matter where they are in our great country, um, the seeds are coming from thousands of miles away. We just haven't mm -hmm. put the seed piece back into that. And so, you know, I, it's probably natural that some of the first um, great seed saving um, education and organizations are national organizations to just get the idea out there. But yeah. in some ways, you know, that's bothered me because it's, it's, it's a, one portion of what got us into this problem is still present. And that is this idea that one size fits all for all of us is going to help us. And it's helping yeah. us up to a point. But at some point, regionally is where the real magic will be. You know, the whole idea of um, diversity is based in that. You know, one, one of the examples we use in our seed schools is that, you know, there are estimates in the year 1900 that there were over a thousand varieties of corn, you know, in active commerce in the United States. That means they were being traded and, and, and or sold and used in the United States. Think about that. Every valley, probably, every little region of this country, every little cultural niche, had its own variety of corn. It was adapted to its needs and its environment. Now we have one company that owns patents in 90% of all the corn being planted. And so I'm, you know, I'm trying to get us back to where we were because that kind of diversity is, um, means resilience, especially as we go forward with climate change and things like that. We don't want to set ourselves up for another Irish potato famine where we only have one variety, a diseased tongue, where the climate changes and we lose it all. And so it seems to me to make sense then to focus on regional first. If each region mm -hmm. of the country started to develop its own varieties of corn, we'd be way better off. And so that's where we're, that's where we're focusing our energies. And so in a sense, the Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance, what we see is what uh, ourselves doing is what everybody should be doing in a way is looking at your neighbors, looking at those around you and trying to figure out how to share what we found that worked so far and, and build these resilient regional systems as quickly as we can. Mm -hmm. and so we, see ourselves, we see ourselves as a model for that. How do you do that? Who's done that well? I think, you know, other regions of the world have. In South Africa, Andrew Mushita has helped organize the peasants in 17 countries to do that. There's um, programs that Bioversity International has going in Nepal and other countries that are starting to do that. And frankly, in the United States, we're just way behind. Well, not for long, right? 
<laughs> well, doing. you know that yeah, the American exceptionalism. Yeah, maybe we'll, well get up and I, running and surpass. I don't know. I'm not, yeah, and I, I'm not in the speed saving world like you are. I mean, with all the outreach and education that you do, but even at my level, I mean, the the, peop- the, the like-minded people that I know who are into local food and quality food are are. I mean, seed saving is just like one of the most exciting things that we talk about and do. Um, so it seems to me that it's making a comeback. Um, there's a heightened I, awareness about it. I, I agree totally, and that's what makes it so exciting in these times. So thank you for um, showing your interest also. I think together we have huge potential right now to change things. Yes. So let's step back just a little bit. You said you've been in this um, You've been working in this field for 30 years. I think you said 30. So um, tell us how it began for you. How did seeds become so important to you, become such a passion for you? Yeah, well, the passion part, you know, maybe that would depend from my parents. I don't know. But I got involved in this whole thing because I was trying to find seeds for my own garden. I, was, hmm. I, I had moved to Missoula, Montana. I was in college. And in the backyard of the house I was living in, I, um, I got to dig up and have my own first garden. Up to that point, I'd always had to share gardens with other people. And that's a great thing. But I got to decide for the first time it was my garden and I wanted the best seeds possible. That was the question. So how do you find the best seeds? for that year, for what you're doing. And I throw this question out to everybody who's listening. Think about that. You only have a limited amount of time and space. It's yours. What are you going to do to make sure it's the best? And through asking that question, we, uh, uh, we, I say, some of my roommates and I at the university, uncovered this whole scenario where the predictions then, and this was 1979 actually, were that we were going to lose 80% of the diversity in our agriculture in the next generation, that the industrialization and the centralization of agriculture was going to monocrop the whole planet. We're going to lose all these thousands of varieties and things that used to be adapted to each little region. And so Mm -hmm. we started looking for stuff that was adapted to Western Montana, that was brought by the Italians who built the railroad, that may have been traded uh, the Chinese, the poppies, whatever had been there for a long time and was adapted to that climate. And we ended up finding enough things to start a little nonprofit and a, a little seed company to make sure that other people had access to them. And so that's really how I got started. I, I thought it was going to be a three-year project. And uh, I woke up the other morning, it was 33 years, actually. <laughs> still working, I'm still working on it. How do you find the best stuff and make it available to the people around you? Well, isn't that incredible? I mean, so many, so many people have a story like that that got them on a, a life path, life journey. They just, they had this issue they wanted to solve for themselves, and it turned into their life's work. So, well, how exciting, yeah. how wonderful! I mean, this passion of yours turned into work that you love and you've been able to do it throughout your life and you're touching so many lives and providing such a uh, wealth of information and resources for others who are looking for the same solution. I mean, your, you, your passion is also helping people and the, the two are working together. And I just think that's fantastic. You know, thank you. Um, 
you know, it always it hasn't always been that way, but that's what you were saying is that, you know, for much of of my career doing this, most people just didn't get it. Most oh, gardeners okay. didn't quite understand. You know, you just you get your color seed catalogs in the mail. You sit up nights through the you know at nights in the winter time drooling over these color pictures of things you want to grow, and then you order your seeds every year from thousands of miles away for your garden and. That just keeps that sort of resilience and diversity from being brought back into our gardens and our, our things. And it's only recently, as you were saying, that it's just exploded in awareness and it's given me, it's like almost now it's been worth it, you know? It was a long, mm-hmm. hard, dark, dark journey for a long time, but it's, it's really rewarding to see what's happening now. So thank you for being part of that. Yes, I'd like to get a little more practical here. Um, because, well, I think I and my friends have our sources of, you know, I mean, not only saving our own seeds, but we might acquire some. And I think we're pretty careful about the sources, but I think I'd like to hear from you, from your expertise, I mean, in terms of the values that you want, that you hold dear, which is uh, geographically strong, resilient seeds, lots of varieties, you know, all these things you've been talking about. So in order for us to... Um, plant our own gardens, and keep up these values which are so important for our regions and the world, how do you think we should go about selecting seeds? Um, like, can you name resources? Can you name a basic process? How do we know that we're making a good choice when we pick one seed over another? Well, you know, what's really great about that is that as modern creatures, um, I think we overthink that part. In other words, the, the ritual itself of saving seeds and the biology of, of what's going on are so much more powerful than what we could think about as the right thing to do. That just simply getting involved in saving seeds in and of itself teaches us to do the right thing. I mean, mm-hmm. if you think about if you think about it, 99.9% of all the diversity in our food crops, you know, all the different varieties that have been developed throughout all the ages. If you look at pictures of corn and the history of corn and all the colors and shapes, or melons that came from a little teeny, you know, wild melon in Asia 3,000 years ago, or carrots and all the colors, you know, that have come about since um, the uh, year 1,000. I mean, if you think about all that diversity and all those things created, it all happened before anybody knew what Mendelian genetics were, before anybody even called themselves a plant breeder, before anybody really even planned out what was going on. All of that took place from somebody just saving seeds. And and much of the time, I think it was the way we do it. It was haphazard. We planted stuff and we forgot about it, or it self-seeded itself. We made mistakes all the time. But as a whole, humanity figured out how to do this and create such an incredible dance with this powerful biological entity we call seed. And so when people ask me, where do you start or what do you have to pay attention to? I get back into the passion part. What do you really love? What do you really love to eat? Or what, do you, what flower do you really love to see or have around? What gives you great joy? What do you have in your collection of seeds has the best story that makes you cry. 
Is it like, you know, I have Sasha's Altai tomato that I brought back from Siberia in 1989. And Sasha walked 35 kilometers up into the Altai Mountains one night so he could go home and get seeds for them. And so he could share them with the Western world. I mean, I think about walking 70 kilometers within a 24-hour period just so you could share your seeds. I mean, that story makes me cry. And so I love Sasha's Altai. That's where I started, you know, saving seeds. And every time I save them, I think about that sort of sacrifice. That's what's important about seed saving and what we've lost. These are our magical friends. They're our children, it's the Hopi thing. And so we need to get back involved with them on that level. So that's what I look for in communities. There are people that are just, they can't sleep at night because of their relationship is so beautiful and powerful with the seeds that they're planting and saving. If we do that alone, we'll be okay. All the rest of it will fall out, you know, because you're going to then share them. I mean, it's not difficult to do. Seed saving is not difficult to do. It's not difficult to do well. And when you do it, you end up with too much. So now we have to share. So do we do that through seed exchanges, giving it to our friends? Do we start seed libraries? I mean, you're seeing this happen all over the United States in a relatively short period of time. And so anchored in that passion and that love for the variety that we hold in our hands, that's all we really need and the rest just follows. It's really beautiful. That is beautiful. That's incredible. I want to point out here that you actually have a resource to help people start saving seeds um, on your site. And everyone, here's an easy link for you. If you go to knowyourfoodpodcast.com slash basic seed saving, you'll get Bill's basic seed saving book. Um, It's actually a collection of um, directions and articles right there on his site, or you can purchase the print version. But the the browsing is free right there. Is that correct, Bill? That's correct. uh, you know, it's too late to to own things <laughs> like that in some ways for me. You know, what what good does it do to have a successful economic entity when the world is going down around you? And so I wrote that little book in 1992 um, because I realized that most people at that time and still do think seed saving is this big, scary, dark forest. And so what I wanted to do was be like Hansel and Gretel or whatever and have little breadcrumbs into it. How do you get started in this? And it turns out that there's five uh, common garden vegetables that are mostly self-pollinated, which means that they pollinate themselves before they even have a chance to cross with something else. And they produce their seeds that year. So what it means is all you have to do to save the seeds is grow it in your garden. Yeah, so so those are the easy ones. And so I I wrote this little book to get people to do those first and then to go to the intermediates. And then finally, when you feel good, you can go to the experts. But in that way, there was a step-by-step way to get into Mm -hmm. this whole thing and have success. And so that's that's what that was about. And then I just took out everything that people didn't need and made sure the little book had everything you would need to be a really great seed saver over a long period of time. And so that's the essence of the kind of like the skeleton. It's just a little basic seed saving book. And if you buy it, it's only $6. That's $5.95. That was the other idea is that so many seed saving books cost 30 bucks that people didn't want to risk it, you know, without knowing how to do it. And so this is a sort of a first step way to do it. 
Well, it looks to be a great, great um, resource, and I look forward to print, purchasing a print version of it myself. Um, this looks wonderful, and thank you so much for sharing it. Um, we are, this has gone so fast, almost out of time, but I want to make sure we talk about um, your seed school. Can you just oh. tell us what you're doing with the seed school? Well, I woke up uh, four years ago and said, oh, my God, we need thousands of people doing this in the United States immediately. And so tried to figure out how that I could just get out what little I've learned. You know, 30 years, I'm just a beginner, too, in some ways. I mean, this is such a deep and rich field. And so when, I, when we got started at the University of Montana, we started our little seed company, and we tried to to do a good job, there was no one left that we could find on that small scale to teach us how to do it. And we ended up making tons of mistakes. I won't say there was no one, but we couldn't find anyone that would let us intern or anyone that was mm. teaching how to do it. And so I woke up 30 years later going, oh my God, I've become the person that I was looking for in some ways. I mean, I don't know all of what to do, but I could sure help somebody with 30 years worth of mistakes to avoid those. And so that was the basic idea of seed school. And so we started that, we copied the permaculture program. Instead of doing a two-week permaculture design course, we did a one-week. We've gotten that down to six days. It distills um, all the knowledge you will need to not only um, uh, uh, save seeds, but to share them well, whether you want to start a small seed company. We've got 13 of our students have done that but countless libraries and seed exchanges. And it will also help you become a good seed citizen so that you can understand the complexity of some of the arguments being used against us in this movement. Mm -hmm. And so it's all rolled into a six-day program. And we've now graduated over 500 students from all over the world that are out there in the world doing this now. And so it's been a really incredible and rewarding sort of reflection of the times, I think. The time is now, and people are waking up and understanding, and now there's a place you can go, and you can change your life. We had a woman come in who had never even gardened, who now has a small regional seed company, you know. And so, yeah, it's all there. We can't teach you everything in six days, but we will hook you in to how to do it and teach mm -hmm. you the most important things. And so that's really what seed school is about. It's no bullshit. It's just, you know, it's time to do it. If you want to do it, this is the best that we have on how to do it. Congratulations on that. Congratulations on graduating 500, more than 500 students. So you are, this is a hands-on uh, school, six-day school that you do right there in Idaho. But I thought I saw on your website that you're taking it on the road, too. So you're able to go places with your school. Is that correct? That is correct. We've uh, done full credit courses at Hampshire College and at the University of Montana and at Prescott College. Um, we've been to Los Angeles. Um, you know, so uh, we go where we're pulled. The idea is too important to, to box up. And, and so we're um, right now I'm focused in the Rocky Mountain West, and we do have a beautiful hot springs farm location where we present the school now at Onsen Farm. And you can find out at RockyMountainSeeds.org. But um, starts, this uh, next iteration starts November 2nd, and you can, uh, you can come and uh, soak with us in between classes mm -hmm. in a hot springs pool and mm -hmm. and um, get hands-on experience on the working farm. It's really going to be exciting. Oh, it sounds fantastic. Thank you so much, Bill, for spending this time today sharing your passion and the great work you're doing on seed saving. I, I, I know I've been inspired and others will too. 
Well, thank you. And if there's anything we can do, let me know, please. I sure will. And everyone who's listening, you can visit Bill and find out more. We just barely scratched the surface. So there's much more online at his site, RockyMountainSeeds.org. You can check out the seed school. You can check out the basic seed-saving book. Order your print book if you'd like. Um, You'll also find all the links we've talked about and more at the show notes, knowyourfoodpodcast.com slash 89. Thank you, Bill. Thank you. Take care. Thank you so much for joining me today. I hope to see you again soon. Let me tell you what you can do next. You can visit the show notes for this episode. Just go to knowyourfoodpodcast.com slash, and then without a space, just type the number of this episode. You'll get links and much more information about what we've been talking about. You can submit questions for future episodes. I love to answer your questions on the air. So go to knowyourfoodpodcast.com slash questions to submit them. You can stop by traditionalcookingschool.com to get five free traditional cooking videos from me. And finally, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, the podcast app, or Stitcher. If you're on a mobile device, just search for Know Your Food with Warty while you're in the app. If you're on a desktop, go to knowyourfoodpodcast.com slash iTunes right in your browser. While you're there, please do leave a rating or review. I love to get them, love to read your comments, and they're invaluable to help other people find this podcast. Thank you so much.